Oh, let's let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Again, chapter 12 is about gifts of the Spirit. That was the intro. Then chapter 13, that great hymn to love. Paul wants to make sure that whatever gifts we have, that we're exercising those gifts for the sake of the body, but also we're exercising those gifts out of love and in love. Uh, part of the way I characterize the Corinthian church is they have the gifts of the Spirit, they just don't quite have the fruits of the Spirit. And sometimes when we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, you can almost say there's really only one fruit of the Spirit, love, that presents itself with different aspects. Love, patience, peace, kindness, self-control, long-suffering. But you notice whenever Paul does his list of the fruit of the Spirit, he starts with love. And uh, so it's a very gifted congregation, but they need to work on the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. So with that being said, and I'm going to try to take our time through 1 Corinthians 14, uh, particularly parts of it, because there's really a lot here. And I suspect that a lot of what you'll see in 1 Corinthians 14 uh, will be very new to you, very novel. It's probably not topics you've talked about a lot. So, with that being said, look at 1 Corinthians 14, uh, beginning at verse 1. Pursue love, and again, he's connecting you back to chapter 13. Uh, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So, you know, pursue love, make sure you're trying to live out of love, but pursue the spiritual gifts. We looked at the list of spiritual gifts here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We looked at Paul's list in Ephesians. We looked at Paul's list in Romans. So we've seen at least three of Paul's list of spiritual gifts, special gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to Christians for the sake of the body. Um, notice he says that you have to pursue love. Love does not just happen um, by our nature. Uh, it's not a natural occurrence. We have to pursue love to, to make it happen. And he's also telling us to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So uh, think for a moment, what are the spiritual gifts you're desiring? Again, think about Paul's list. Uh, ask yourself what are the spiritual gifts you're desiring. My guess is you may not have thought about that lately. You know, whatever spiritual gifts just happen in your life, they happen, they're wonderful, but you might not have given a lot of attention to pursuing spiritual gifts. Uh, Paul wants you to desire the spiritual gifts. But notice, and this is going to uh, prepare you for the whole path of this chapter. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Again, that was one of the list of the nine spiritual gifts that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, the gift of prophecy. Uh, God gives the gifts. God sovereignly distributes the gifts. We have to desire them and be open to them. Uh, we have to use them uh, for the good of the Christian community. And we have to exercise them in love. But there really is uh, somewhat, we don't know completely, but there appears to be somewhat of a, of a pecking order in the gifts. Uh, Paul is particularly fond of prophecy. And that's why he says, uh, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. He's going to point out here in 1 Corinthians 14, 
uh, particularly that prophecy is much more significant for the body of Christ than speaking in tongues. Uh, you can pursue spiritual gifts, uh, but some benefit the body of Christ more than others benefit the body of Christ. He uh, especially says that about prophecy. Uh, let me go ahead and define prophecy for you again, in case you weren't here when we talked about it in 1 Corinthians uh, 12. Prophecy in the biblical sense. And that's the book that you hold in front of you, so that's the way we're dealing with it. Prophecy in the biblical sense is not foretelling the future. That's Jeannie Dixon and her crowd. That's prophecy from a biblical sense, saying what's going to happen in the future. Uh, that's not biblical prophecy. Uh, it, it might touch on biblical prophecy, but biblical prophecy is speaking the mind of God to the congregation, to the gathered people. Speaking the mind of God, revealing the mind of God to people. Uh, sometimes that does have ramifications for the future. You know, um, you know, I, I, I can prophesy that you that God wants you to treat your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's the mind of God. God wants you to treat your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. That comes out of 1 Corinthians way back earlier in our study. God wants you to treat your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's prophesying. Now, if you don't treat your body like a temple of the Holy Spirit, I can make some pretty good guesses about the future for you. So sometimes prophecy impinges on the future, but prophecy is not what Jeannie Dixon means by it, or Edgar Casey or people like that. Prophecy means speaking on behalf of God, speaking the mind of God, revealing God's will, God's purpose. So, so obviously, before we even continue, you, you see why Paul is saying prophecy particularly is an important gift for the body of Christ, for the gathered community, and for us as individuals. So he says, um, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Uh, verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. Let me just go ahead and read a chunk of this and go back. Uh, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people. For their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church, the community. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. Now, did you hear Paul say that? Paul says, now, I want you all to speak in tongues. He's actually going to say later in this chapter that he speaks in tongues more than all of them. So he's not anti-tongue. Obviously, he's not anti-tongue. Uh, he says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Okay, let me back up a little bit. What's Paul talking about here? Well, he's comparing two gifts of the Holy Spirit. We looked at nine earlier in chapter 12. Uh, he's comparing two gifts of the Holy Spirit. He's comparing prophesying with speaking in tongues. Um, We've talked about speaking in tongues, uh, and I'll go ahead and give you the cliff note version again. In the New Testament, uh, most of us assume, and I'll show it to you right here, most of us assume that we see at least two different types 
of speaking in tongues. Uh, obviously, the early Christian community was a, a community that was gifted and had the gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, it's never died out in the Christian community over the last 2,000 years. It has had a, an amazing resurgence uh, since the uh, beginning of uh, the, the 20th century. Uh, speaking in tongues is uh, all over the Christian community now. And when you look at Christianity worldwide, the fastest growing part of the Christian community, uh, and it may not be that much longer before this part becomes the largest part of the Christian community, but the fastest growing part of the Christian community in the world uh, is that part of the Christian community that embraces speaking in tongues, whether you call them Pentecostal charismatic. So um, uh, we obviously see it in the early church. It never really died out. There were periods in church history that it, it wasn't discussed very much, uh, but then since the year 1900, it's been a big part of contemporary modern Christian history. And we see at least two different types of speaking in tongues here in the New Testament. Uh, in the book of Acts, and most of you probably remember the story of Pentecost. It gets read every year on Pentecost. Uh, the Holy Spirit fell on the church, and they spoke in other tongues or languages. Uh, it depends on your translation. And then you notice there in the book of Acts, it says, after they spoke in other tongues or languages, everyone heard the apostles speaking in their own, not the apostles, but their own language. Remember that from the story of Pentecost. So at Pentecost, it appears the gift of tongues was a gift of language. Um, and again, sometimes Acts chapter 2 is just translated that way. Languages, they spoke in other languages as opposed to spoke that in other tongues. But they were miraculously gifted in other languages. And all of the pilgrims that were there in Jerusalem for the Jewish festival of Pentecost, it was a Jewish festival before it was a Christian festival, all the, all the people that were there gathered from around the world, they heard the apostles, and the apostles didn't know they were doing it. They knew they were doing something. They were speaking in tongues, and all the people gathered there, listened to them, heard the apostles speaking in, in their native tongue, the pilgrims there in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, so in a sense, they're speaking in tongues. It's a language. It's a language that uh, the different people peoples heard them, it in their own language. Uh, in a sense, in Acts chapter 2, it was as much a, a miracle of, of hearing as it was a miracle of speaking. Um, so there, there's the first example in the New Testament of speaking in tongues. It happened on the day of Pentecost. Spirit fell, and it says they spoke in other languages, spoke in other tongues. Uh, then when you get to Paul, he talks about tongues in, in two ways. One includes what you saw there in Acts chapter 2. He talks about um, the gift of tongues, which is God speaking something to the congregation. So it's a gift from God to an individual for the congregation. And that's where Paul said back in chapter 12 that, you know, obviously unless there's an interpreter, uh, the congregation is not going to get the understanding from the gift of tongues if it's that gift of tongues with God speaking to an individual for the sake of the congregation. So there has to be an interpreter. On Pentecost, 
I guess the Holy Spirit was the interpreter because everybody heard in their own personal language what the apostles were saying. Even though the apostles didn't know they were speaking languages from all over the world, they were just speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, is what Acts 2 says. So there's that speaking in tongues, which is God speaking to the gathered community. I think what was happening uh, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost was that was just the Spirit displaying there uh, with the original Christians on the day of Pentecost, that this movement of ours is to be a global movement, a worldwide movement of all people, all tribes. And that's why all the people heard the apostles, even though the apostles were all Jewish, uh, they, they, they heard the apostles speaking in their language. But Paul, and Paul talks about that, God can speak to a congregation through a gift of tongue to a person. It has to be an interpreter. But then there's the, the other kind of tongue, which I'm going to show, show it to. I'm going to show you where it occurs here in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, the other gift of tongues is the gift of tongue, tongues as a personal prayer language for just an individual, uh, for the good of the individual, for the benefit of the individual. It's the individual spirit speaking to God. Uh, that's why it's oftentimes taught, called a prayer language or a praise language. If you, if you go in to a Pentecost or charismatic setting and there are people speaking in tongues and no one's interpreting because uh, they know all about what Paul said about interpreting and no, and no one's interpreting, then obviously what's happening is the other kind. It's just the prayer language, the gift of tongues. And I, I'll show you where Paul actually references that here. So that's the gift of tongues. But what Paul's saying is, the gift of prophecy is more important. Uh, if you notice, and there are parts of the church who simply define the gift of prophecy as preaching. And I'm okay with that. I, I think it goes beyond preaching. Um, you know, I, I think preaching has a large has a has a large prophetic component when a preacher is delivering a message you're you're getting two things you're getting um, the benefit of the pastor the preacher's study spirituality spiritual life walk with christ uh, hopefully a significant amount of study i know that there's some traditions that think preachers you know just, just should stand up and open their mouth and let it rip and I usually tell people in those traditions, yeah, I trust the Holy Spirit, but I want to give the Holy Spirit something to work with um, <laughs> on Sunday morning. So you've you got that something to work with that, that the preacher should bring to the preaching. But anybody that preaches will also tell you that as a, as a sermon is happening, there's what I thought I was going to say. There's what I had prepared to say. But sometimes we all say stuff that shocks us, that um, it really wasn't something I prepared, you know. And, and even beyond that, and this, is, this happens all the time, and this is rather frightening, but comforting at the same time. People are always telling me stuff they heard me say. And I'm like, really? You know, I want to go back and watch the tape because I, I can't even imagine what it was I said that you interpreted that way. Uh, but so there's, there's several things going on in a sermon. It's not just a, that's why teaching and preaching are different things. You know, there's, there's, there's the study. There's the Holy Spirit working in the life of the preacher. There's the Holy Spirit working in the life of the hearer. 
that's why when you've heard something that you say I said, and I've heard some bizarre stuff that people said I said, uh, that's probably the Holy Spirit in your life telling you something. Because I, I, I've literally gone back and watched tapes to try to figure out what did I say that even got close. But sometimes, so, 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 so preaching involves both the study, both the lecturing, both the teaching, and that prophetic piece. Um, you know, I was trained, and it, and I was guys trained this way because it, it fits my personality style. The person who, who taught me homiletics, that's the fancy term for the art of preaching or the science. I prefer the art of preaching. The, the professor who taught me homiletics, preaching, we had to work hard on sermons, but he would not let us walk into a pulpit with more than a half page of notes. Um, and I, that's still pretty much my, my style. I, I've worked really hard on that sermon. I put hours in that sermon, or like my wife would tell you, I've put 35 years into that sermon of walking with Christ, but it's not that much laying in front of me. And over, it takes a while to get comfortable with this. Part of, I've got to, I got to leave some room for the Spirit in there. And that's why there's, there's teaching and prophecy. You put those together, you got a sermon. Uh, teaching can just be teaching. Uh, but teaching plus prophecy, God using that moment is what creates a sermon. And, um, um, yeah, I mean, any of us that preach know that. Or, you know, ask my wife who has heard me preach now for 36 years. Um, and she's heard me, what I, I mean, she's heard me preach what I thought was I, was I was preaching the same sermon I preached before, and they weren't the same sermon I preached before. Uh, that's why preaching, you know, my, my in-laws, and I love my in-laws if they're listening, my in-laws... Um, used to always want to come play play spades or play um, hand and foot on Saturday evening with me. That's not really my time because I go to bed really early on Saturday because I get up early, early on Sunday morning to get ready for, for, for preaching. And my in-laws would always say, are you finished with your sermon? And I would always say, I will finish with my sermon about 12 o'clock tomorrow. Because preaching is an event is something that occurs in the moment. You, you do some work and some preparation for that event, but it is not just taking something that I received in, a, in my study and come offer it to you on Sunday morning. You know, um, when I, I get up really, really early on Sunday morning, um, do almost nothing with my sermon notes, uh, that time on Sunday morning, and this is, a, this is not a good analogy for me because I know nothing about sports, but I think this is what happens in the sporting world. Uh, you know, like I think people have to get ready for the big game day. That's what I'm doing on Sunday morning is from about 5 o'clock to about 7.45. That's me getting ready to preach, and that has really nothing to do with those sermon notes. I usually don't glance those sermon notes again until I get here. But I've got to give those hours of getting ready to, to preach, getting ready for the game day. I went to a church one time. Let me think of where I'm at a minute. There's no church y'all would know, so don't try to figure it out. I went to a church one time. Every church has unique traditions. After I got to that church, I learned that one of the unique traditions was the pastor unlocked those 25 doors on Sunday morning 
which I don't mind unlocking doors uh, if they didn't mind me doing it on Saturday night. They weren't keen on that idea. But I finally told them, I said, I get up early on Sunday morning, but I don't get up early on Sunday morning to spend time with you or unlocking doors. That's probably the most valuable time I spend is from 5 to about 7 o'clock. I could start getting ready about 7 o'clock and show up here about 7.45. But you've got to, preaching is, is study plus, study teaching plus prophecy. So when Paul's talking about prophecy, understand what he's talking about. Uh, some, tr- some traditions do just translate it preaching, or they won't translate it that way. They always translate it prophecy, but they'll explain it as preaching. Um, but then you have to work on what we mean by preaching. Preaching and teaching are completely different things. Preaching and lecturing are very different things. Uh, so when Paul means prophecy, he's talking about being connected to God in such a way that you can speak the mind of God. And that's a scary, um, a scary responsibility. That's what Paul means by prophecy. And that's why, if you notice, and he's comparing prophecy to speaking in tongues here. Obviously, in Corinth, they were making way too much out of speaking in tongues. So if you notice, he says, look at verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their, and I've told preachers they need to pay attention to this, for their upbuilding and their encouragement and their consolation, Uh, Then you notice, if you look at the end of verse 4, the one who prophesies builds up the church. So, yeah, if you're not, um, if if you are not upbuilding and encouraging and consoling or comforting and building up the church, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing uh, during that act of preaching slash prophesying. So Paul's very clear that when prophecy happens, it does those things for the community. So it's obvious why prophecy is much more important to Paul than speaking in tongues. Now, I've watched some people use uh, 1 Corinthians to just try to work their way to the place of saying Paul had no regard for speaking in tongues. So therefore, stop it. Don't do it. Um, I don't know how in the world you read Paul that way. Uh, you've already heard him say, you know, now I want you all to speak in tongues. You're going to hear him say later he speaks in tongues more than everybody in Corinth. So obviously he was, he was okay. That's probably putting it too mildly. But he was fond of, of the gift of speaking in tongues. Um, he just wants to put it in its proper place. That's what a lot of life is about, keeping the main thing the main thing and keeping everything else in their proper place. Uh, I'm sort of like John Wesley. I believe speak, and by the way, I'm like John Wesley because John Wesley and I think we're like Paul on this issue. We'll see it in a moment. I, I think speaking in tongues is primarily, particularly if you're doing it as a prayer language, it, it should be for personal worship, personal private worship. Uh, if you do it in corporate worship, it needs to be very quietly because, you, again, you're not edifying anybody else with it. Uh, and you certainly don't want to fall into the Corinthian trap of spiritual pride and trying to impress somebody else with it. If, if it is your prayer language, I think it's, it, it fits better for private personal worship or, or do it quietly. And every Methodist church I have ever pastored has had members who have a prayer language and they use it quietly during corporate worship. Sometimes the hymn's so, sometimes the organ's so loud you don't know what they're doing over there. Um, 
so you know again it's about keeping the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy in in their proper place so look at the text again um let's go back to verse two for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to god this is one of those places notice that here he's talking about speaking in tongues that's not for the sake of the the body via interpretation here he's talking about speaking in tongues to god that's why we see both kind of woven together in Paul's language. The gift of tongues for the sake of the body that needs an interpreter and the gift of tongues for a prayer language, which is just an individual speaking to God. Uh, so he, that's why he's talking about here in verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, because he's talking about a specific kind of speaking in tongues here, not to men, no interpreter, not to men, but to God. That's prayer language. For no one understands him. It's an ecstatic utterance. No one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. That's speaking in tongues, uttering mysteries in the Spirit. Here I think he's talking about prayer language. Uh, They're uttering mysteries in the Spirit. They're speaking it to God, and that's why other people don't know what. It's not benefiting me. I mean, the only way it benefits me is it it may tell me you have a great prayer life, you may be close to God, and you're being blessed by your prayer language. And that's not bad, I guess, but that's, that's, that's not what I come to worship. I don't come to worship to learn how good you've got your spiritual life. Um, so that's why I think it fits better in the, in, in the private worship. Verse 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Again, this is, again, speaking in tongues as a prayer language because if it were speaking in tongues as a message to the congregation that would also include an interpreter of a message from God to the congregation, then obviously that'd be building up the congregation. But he's talking about the other kind of speaking in tongues that, that, that does not build up the church. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Um, prophecy should build up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. I don't know if I'd say greater, but certainly more beneficial to a gathered community. Because again, you know, if, if, if you're going to do it in a gathered worship service, it needs to edify the whole body. You don't come to worship just to have your own little private Jesus party. You can have your own little private Jesus party at home. But we're there to worship God and, and edify each other in worship. Uh, so that's why he says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, be more so to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater, more significant for the body than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Okay, go on and we'll do the rest quickly. Now, brothers, sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If... If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? You know, even musical instruments, you know, you can do reveille, you can do taps, you can do retreat, you can do charge. So he's just saying, if you're speaking in tongues, with no interpreter, if you're speaking in tongues and it's your prayer language, it's not benefiting other people. So he, he's, trying, he's, he's trying to just hammer this home. Uh, verse 9, So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, and that's basically what speaking in tongues is, 
how will anyone know what is said? Uh, for you will be speaking into the air. Uh, but again, if it's a prayer language and you're preaching, speaking to God, yeah, you are speaking into the air. But again, if you're in corporate worship, Paul's questioning the use of that in corporate worship. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. None is without meaning. Um, speaking in tongues is good. Uh, none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language... I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, and Paul's all in favor of that. We all need to pray daily that um, our lives will allow for manifestations of the Spirit. You know, we know that God is always present with us. We all know that. God is always present with us. Um, there's a step beyond that, though, church, and you know this. Uh, I'm grateful for our Pentecostal charismatic brothers and sisters who remind us of this. God is always with us, but then there's the manifestations of the Spirit where it's really like God shows up. You know, I've been in some congregations, um, usually not typical United Methodists, but I've been in some congregations where it's obvious God has shown up. I've been in some African-American congregations. I've been in some uh, congregations in third world areas um, where it's obvious. Now, sometimes God shows up in Methodist churches and we cry. We weep. Sometimes God manifests in our worship, and it can just be a thickness of the Spirit, which I don't know how to explain that, but I think you either know it's there or, or you don't know it's there. Um, so there's, there's the presence of God, then there's a the manifest, manifested presence of God. So I'm grateful for the presence of God, but I'm always praying for God's manifest presence. That's part of what I pray for on Sunday mornings. I mean, I don't have any doubt. I know God's with us when we worship. What I pray for is that you will experience a manifestation of God's presence. You will know he's there with us in worship. So that's why Paul is saying, yeah, you know, you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, and that's a good thing. So strive to excel in building up the church. And again, the church is the people. Excel in building up the church. So that is probably a good place. That's actually the exact place where I wanted to stop. So next week we will pick up right there.